Well, good morning, everybody. You doing all right? Had a good week? My name's Glenn Packham. I'm the pastor here at New Life Downtown. I'm just thrilled that you're here. And uh, this is our third week in Palmer High School, so there's going to be some, some continued kinks that we will work out and, and, uh, and um, all of that. So, so bear with us, but thanks for being here, a, a gathering with us again. You know, there is something special about the corporate gathering of believers. Our joy becomes multiplied when we gather together. Um, you know, a, a thing that you enjoy uh, is, is multiplied. That joy is multiplied when you get to share it with other people, you know. Uh, and you think about a, a little child. I have four of them in my home. Four, not five, as I said two weeks ago. Um, <laughs> but whenever a kid is doing something, what it, at least my kids anyway, it doesn't take long when they're having fun to turn around and say, look, Mom, look, Dad, or look. You know, Jonas will say all the time, look, Sophia, look, Nora. And there's just something about when we say to one another, look, look. And that's a little bit like what our corporate worship is. We come together and we behold Christ and what God has done for us in Christ. And we look to each other and we say, look, look, Leonard, look, John, look, uh, Rachel, look, look at what God is doing. This is amazing. And so that's a big part of what we do when we gather together. This is the moment of the service where we open the scriptures together. And so if you would turn uh, to the book of Acts, if you will, it's in the New Testament after the Gospels. Um, Acts chapter 16 is where we are today. If you've been with us at New Life Downtown for a little while, you know that we've been going through the book of Acts. Um, kind of been, it's kind of been our series. We talked about how Acts naturally divides into two halves. Um, the first half is kind of episode one, and it is, um, it's very much um, how, let's see, with Peter as the main character, and it's how the gospel is beginning to spread under Peter's leadership. And then season two, if you will, Acts kind of divided season one, season two, like a TV show. Season two is Paul kind of taking the lead role in advancing the gospel. But one of the, one of the questions we've been asking ourselves as we've studied the book of Acts together is, What does it mean to be the people of God here and now? Now, Acts is interesting because obviously it's the story of the followers of Jesus beginning to carry out this mission, beginning to announce the reign of God and to see how far those implications or ramifications really go. And really the question this morning is, who is the gospel for? It's one thing to say that Jesus had a lot of followers in the countryside that kind of, you know, rallied around his message and mourned his death and believed that he rose again. But, but let's, be, let's be serious now. I mean, good people in the cities, smart people, intellectuals, educated people, wealthy people, business people, do they really believe this nonsense? Is the Jesus message for simple folks or is it for the whole world? This is the question we're going to explore this morning in Acts 16. Now, I, I grew up in uh, Malaysia, and I, a couple of you, you, many of you have probably heard me talk about it in different ways, um, but Malaysia is officially a Muslim country, but it's a very peaceful Muslim country. It's uh, got a parliament, uh, thanks to the British uh, who came in the early 20th century, and, and, uh, and so there's, there's a lot of religions and races that get along and that live in Malaysia. Um, and, and it's also, you know, by some standards in Southeast Asia, one of the more progressive um, countries in terms of its economy and its access to education. And so sometimes, very often, people will come from different parts of Asia to, to study in Malaysia or to uh, try to advance business deals. Some of you travel as business people. You've probably been through Singapore, which is just used to be part of Malaysia. We'd like to think that we made them what they were and then let them uh, be their own people. But uh, don't tell them that. Um, 
And so, so my parents pastor a church in Malaysia, and it's um, it's a wonderful church. And they've they've often seen people come in from different parts of Asia to spend different times. There's sometimes people come in from Indonesia or from Bangladesh or from Nepal to do some construction work, or there's a project going on. Other times, people come in because of education. And so, in the town where my parents pastor, it's about an hour outside the capital city, more of a rural area. Uh, there are these um, Chinese students that had come in because they knew that if they, if they went to a local college or community college in Malaysia, they would learn in English. And so that was an advantage for them, and they thought that would set them up for success later on. Now, an interesting thing happened as these students came, and they were in this uh, town very close to where my parents pastored. And my mother seized the opportunity to give English lessons to these students and to say, okay, look, we'll, we'll, we'll teach them English. Uh, only what she didn't tell them is that the English passages they would be learning were gospel passages. Um, and so, you know, not so sly, but she would do things like that. And, and lo and behold, several of these students began to come to faith in Christ. I remember one summer when I was visiting from college, uh, they, they baptized something like 30 or 40 Chinese students that summer uh, who had just come to faith as, as a result of this ministry. And it's really a remarkable thing, and many of you have been involved in or you know ministries like that. But as I talked to some of these students, it, it, was, it was interesting to learn from them their impression of Christianity. And basically what they said to me is they said, look, we always thought that Christianity was a peasant religion. It was a religion of the peasants. It's, look, if you're down and out, if you're weak, if you need help, then this Jesus thing is for you. But we, we're seeking wealth, we're seeking affluence, we're seeking success, and we didn't know that this Jesus is for us too. Now, isn't that interesting? Because don't you think that to some degree, even in our day and in our city, in our context, in our culture, there is a little bit of that mindset that Christianity, the gospel, must be for those who kind of need a little lift, a little leg up. But hey, as for me, I've worked hard for what I have. I know how to do this and I know how to do that and I'm a self-made man or I'm a self-made woman and I've got it figured out. And so this Jesus thing, that's cute, but I don't know that I need it. Actually, that challenge is part of the challenge of the gospel going into cities. Because it's one thing in the gospel books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to see Jesus in the countryside. All of us, maybe even our culture would sort of say, well, that's cute. They fall for anything in the countryside, you know, those simple rural folks. But what's going to happen when it goes into the cities? Because cities are interesting places, aren't they? Cities, even our city, which is sort of this cross between a mountain town and a city, you know, we're trying to be, trying to hold on to both things, and it's, that's part of what makes Colorado Springs great. But cities put pe- different kinds of people into context with each other. Now, Gary Meyer recommended a book to me a couple months ago called The Big Sort, written by a, a, a journalist about how in the last 30 or 40 years, Americans have been grouping themselves in homogenous neighborhoods. The chances are over the next two months, all your political yard signs in your neighborhood will look the same. Chances are, uh, depending on which, where your neighborhood is. And this, it's a funny thing that's happened in America where we don't tolerate being around others who are different than us. We just want to congregate around like-minded stuff. But cities didn't used to be like that. In fact, the very hearts of urban areas, the very, the very foundation of sort of urban, the urban movement is to put different kinds of people in life together. If you live in the heart of, of a city, 
uh, or even our city, you, you understand there's even mixed zoning. For those of you who think about that, there's, there's residential, there's commercial, there's uh, public spaces, there's schools. There's stuff kind of mixed in all around. Now, in the burbs, it's different. In the burbs, it's here's all of this, here's where we shop, here's where, it, it's all kind of separated. So it's easier to go through life and not run into people that actually don't look like you. But church is one of those special places where all of a sudden church, and we talked about this last week when we talked about community, church is one of those places where the only thing really that we have in common, the center of our bond is what? It's Jesus. More than anything else, more than any other thing we may or may not have in common, it's Christ. Well, Christ, in one, in one way, pulls people who don't ordinarily belong together and puts them together. In Acts 16, we're going to see Paul encounter three people. And these three people are three very different people. If you were to put your sociology lens on, you would say, these are people that inhabit very different social spheres. And yet, the gospel confronts each of them. And as we explore each of these three people, I want us to think about how we might join in on the story. Are you ready? Acts 16, if you turn there with me, we'll start with verse 12. From there we went to Philippi, a city in Macedonia's first district, and a Roman colony. Now, all of that is a big deal, and we'll we'll, we'll touch on some of it. We stayed in that city several days, and on the Sabbath... We went outside the city gate to the riverbank where we thought there might be a place for prayer. Paul's missionary technique at this point is to go to a city and to find a synagogue. Why? Because he wants to know where the gathering of Jews are first. Why? Because Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. But, but Israel always believed that their Messiah would be good news for the whole world. It would mean that everybody gets to get in. So Paul was determined to say, where are, my, where, where are the people I can go to first? Let's create a base, and then let's go from there. But in Philippi, there is no synagogue yet. One of the main reasons for this is because it takes a number of men, devout men, to start a synagogue. And there aren't enough, apparently. We sat down and began to talk with the women who had gathered. This is wonderful because it's, it shows that here are women who aren't going to wait for enough men to start something. <laughs> and every woman in the room said, all right, now that's what I'm talking about. Reminds me of that scene in uh, my big fat Greek wedding, you know, where the wife says, the man is the head, but the woman is the neck. You know, she turns, I don't know, I don't know about that. But the, it's true in our, in our home, isn't it, babe? But here, here are these women that are saying, we're devout, we're seeking God. There's not enough godly men, but doggone it, it's the Sabbath. We're going to find a place to pray, even if it is down by the river. And we sat down and began to talk with the women who had gathered. And one of those women was Lydia, a Gentile God worshiper from the city of Thyatira, a dealer in purple cloth. Now, all of these things are significant. I'm going to tell you what, what they mean in just a moment. And as she listened, the Lord enabled her to embrace Paul's message. Isn't that beautiful? You know, stop for a second because we are good Americans and we like to think that everything we have, we earned and we got. Last week we used the word blessed to describe what the gospel does for us. I've used the word lucky based on guys like Eugene Peterson and Philip Yancey and others. And lucky is such a wonderful word because lucky automatically makes you think you didn't do anything to deserve this, right? I mean, you think about saying to an athlete, that was a lucky shot. What's the first thing they'll say? 
No, it wasn't. I practiced for that. And we have this inner resistance towards saying, don't, are you, what do you, and here's Luke subtly showing us that even when a person comes to faith, it's not you that can take credit for it. It's the Lord who enabled you to embrace the message. You're blessed. Amen? And once she and her household were baptized, she urged, now that you have decided that I am a believer in the Lord, come and stay in my house. And she persuaded us. A couple things about Lydia. Lydia is a very wealthy and influential woman. How do we know this? Number one, there's no man in Lydia's life that's mentioned. In the ancient world, this was a big deal because normally when you're going to name a woman, you're going to name the man in her life first, the one who would be taking care of her, providing for her. But Lydia is named alone, which means to say whether she was a widow or whether she inherited this business, she's got a lot of means. She's a woman of means. She's got wealth. Secondly, we're told that she's a dealer in purple cloth. The only people who bought purple cloth, not just government officials, but the highest of the highest. We're talking emperors. We're talking the governors. We're talking the best of the best wore purple cloths. I mean, think of the most expensive design. I'm out of it, so I don't even know what the most expensive brand would be, but a suit that would be a $10,000 suit or whatever. And then you think, who buys those? There are people that buy that stuff. Imagine if you were one of the sole dealers of that clothing in your city. You were going to be a person of means. And so Lydia had wealth. Furthermore, Lydia invites Paul and his three travelers to stay at her house. To be a a hostess, to be a patron, uh, required that you had a house of, with room in it. And many people had smaller quarters, smaller living areas. And so for Lydia to say, come on, stay, they're thinking, really, does she have the room? And she's, no, listen, guys, look, I've got the room. Come over and stay. And they do. And by the end of the chapter, the church is meeting in Lydia's house. She's got some wealth and some influence. The first thing we want to say, the first person uh, that we want to say in Acts 16 is this. The gospel is for the powerful. The gospel is for the powerful. Now, this is an interesting move that Luke does to talk about the rich in a favorable way. Because if you're loosely familiar with Luke's gospel, Luke, of all the other gospel writers, Luke is the one that has the harshest words of Jesus for rich people, right? Do you remember Luke 6? What does Luke say about the, what does Luke have Jesus say about the rich in Luke 6? He says, woe to you who are rich. So, jeez, Luke, it's a bit harsh. I mean, maybe Jesus said that, but let's downplay that. I mean... Blessed are you who are poor. Woe to you. Luke has these, historically Luke is tough on the, on the wealthy. Luke records some of Jesus' harshest words on the rich. Earlier in, in, in Acts, Luke records Ananias and Sapphira. Remember this story? Where he, he tells a story about rich people being dishonest about their wealth and then being struck down. So now Luke is making a move that we wouldn't expect. He's trying to say that, look, it is not wealth that is evil. It is how wealth is used. And he's saying, look, wealth can be the thing that gives your life meaning, or wealth could be the thing that advances and announces Jesus as the king. Luke is trying to show us here that wealth can be used in a redemptive way. The gospel has something to say to the influential, to the powerful. And what it says is this, only Jesus is the one that can give meaning to your lives. 
Only Jesus is the one who can say, this is what you were made for. On your own, you could never add meaning or significance to your life, no matter the success, no matter the power, no matter the rank, no matter the thing. Look, all of you who have been in the business world for decades can testify. You'll be the first to testify. Look, there is no end to climbing the ladder. Am I right? There is no end to say, oh, if we just did this, we could make more. If we just did, there is no end to that. Listen, one of the biggest ways that sin shapes us or disfigures us is by getting us to take something good and to treat it as something ultimate. To get us to take something that is good and to treat it like something ultimate. This is the sin that the Bible talks about as idolatry. And so it's possible to take wealth and to say wealth is an end in itself or power is an end in itself or success is an end in itself. If you think that way, the gospel says no. The gospel says try it. And you'll find that life is still miserable. You'll never work your way, pay your way, achieve your way into saving yourself. No amount of money will erase your guilt. No amount of wealth will atone for the bad. We don't believe in the scales thing of good versus bad on the scale. The gospel says, look, human beings are fundamentally flawed and broken because of sin. And so you can make wealth the ultimate thing, but in the end, your brokenness will infect your wealth itself. If you don't get your heart right with God, everything you touch carries the taint and the disease of sin. Does that make sense? I mean, could you imagine this? I mean, think, think of like this, you know, a, a movie scene where this person's carrying a virus and, and he keeps thinking, no, if I do this or if I go here, and everywhere he goes, he brings with him the infection of sin. But see, what the gospel does is it says, look, let me tell you something. Jesus has come, and Jesus has come to pay for all of this. Jesus has come to rescue. Jesus has come to redeem. Jesus has come to do for you what you could never do. And when you surrender to Jesus, then all of a sudden, Everything else you touch gets transformed in a different way. So now influence and success and wealth and money, they're not bad things. They become redefined. They become subservient. to. The, they, they get put in the right place. Paul, one of the things Paul needed in every city was to have a patron, to have someone that would vouch for him. In the ancient world, if you were there, were, there were a lot of itinerant teachers and speakers, some on Greek philosophy, some on theology, and these itinerant speakers needed a base that gave them credibility. In fact, one of the reasons Paul struggled in Corinth and some of these other places is because they said, wait a minute, we know these guys and we know these guys, but who are you? Where's your base? Where's your operator? Who, who, what gives you credibility? And Lydia here is able to say, Paul, here's a base of operations here. Here's a way to, here's a platform for the gospel to begin to be announced. All of you in the room, to some degree, are at various places in pursuing success or influence. It's not, again, it's not an evil thing. But what Christ does for us is he rearranges things and says, look, at the center of all of this is me. Now, how will you use influence? How will you use wealth? Can wealth be used redemptively? And the answer in Acts 16 is, yes. Yes, it can. Over and over and over again. Many of you know this because of the ways that you use even your own money. 
Jesse alluded to this here, but when we, when we do our joy time, uh, you know, our tithes and offer, those words may be funny to you, but look, the idea is this, there's a kind of giving that is worship giving, that we say that God, this is a symbolic act, my first and my best goes to you, it's, it's, it's not an investment plan, I'm not asking, you know, this is not like, I want to know how many cents of every dollar goes to, you know, that's different, that's not a charitable gift, it's not an investment, it's worship giving, it's this thing of saying, I belong to this house and this is where I give. And I want to thank you guys for that. That's awesome. That's what allows all of these things to flourish and, and go on. And then there's extra giving. And many of you do this beyond that. You sponsor a child. We're going to talk later this fall about our partnership with the community in Swaziland and, and how it works through sponsorship. There's extra stuff that we can do where all of a sudden $35 a month becomes not just a cable bill, but it becomes something that redemptively releases a child from poverty. Does that make sense? There is a gospel way of reframing wealth and influence. Lydia gets it. As the story goes on, Acts verse 16. One day when we were on the way to the place for prayer, we met a slave woman. She had a spirit that enabled her to predict the future. She made a lot of money for her owners through fortune telling, and she began following Paul and us, shouting, These people are servants of the Most High God, and they are proclaiming a way of salvation to you. All right, let's stop for a minute. Most of us, when you hear the story, you think, well, what's the problem with that? She's saying they're servants of the Most High God. Isn't that who God is? Listen, this word God is a funny word. Because in our society, we assume that people either believe in God or don't believe in God. In the ancient world, that wasn't the issue, was it? Everybody believed in God or gods. In fact, this very phrase, the Most High God, was likely a reference to the Greek pantheon in the city. To say, look, there's a whole host of Greek mythologies and deities and gods, and there's one who rules them all, one ring to rule them, one God who reigns over all. He's the Most High God. And we imagine in our day that we don't live in an idolatrous society, and so if someone says God versus someone not saying God, we think, hooray, chalk one up as a victory for Jesus. And I want to say to you, gently and humbly, not so fast. Not so fast. Because Paul says, this woman is a distraction, because she's implicating us with a Greek mythology version of God. She says they're servants of the Most High God and they're hearing all of their own legends and religions and pagan references to the word God. And Paul's saying, don't muddy the waters. That's not what I'm talking about. And he finally rebukes the demon and says, in Jesus' name. My caution to you is that people mean different things when they say the word God. And don't assume because one group uses it and one group doesn't use it, like what happened earlier this week, a little hubbub about a certain group who dropped the word God and another group who had the word God scattered. You know what I'm talking about? Okay. (laughs) And we assume that the ones who use the word God are on our side, chalk one up, victory. And I want to say as the church, we say, we should be the people that say, not so fast. Not so fast. Because God for us is not an abstract concept. God, this is not the God of the philosophers as in the unmoved mover, the originator, the creator, the life force, the the one who gives us unalienable rights. When we speak of God, we name Him. 
the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't believe in God, the concept that can be philosophically proven through a series of arguments. That's, that may be helpful, maybe, but you have not yet gotten from that God, the concept, to God, the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's a big leap still. Does that make sense, everybody? You're picking up on this? Sometimes Christians are so eager to say, they're, they're announcing God. Woo! When really we might ought to take the caution that Paul didn't said, stop! Stop saying, throwing God's name around because I don't know what you mean when you say God. When we name God, the God that we name cannot be co-opted by any political cause or campaign. The God that we name does not belong to a nation or a history or a, or a, or a race. The God that we name is the sovereign God over all. Wake up, church. We don't say an amen to people who name God's name frivolously. We say a Jesus name in the face of it. All right? Think about that. That's a little side note for you in this feverish season of the next two months. She did this for many days and this annoyed Paul so much that he finally turned and said to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to leave her and it left her at the very moment. The gospel is for the powerful, but it is also for the powerless. This slave girl is at the bottom of the bottom of the rung of the society of her day. There's nothing that she can do to change her situation. There's nothing that she can do to get out of this. When you think about slaves in the first century, this is not a a matter of, um, you know, maybe we could do this. Maybe There's no options here, let alone a female slave, someone who's being exploited. Now, instantly, our mind goes towards human trafficking, And it goes towards issues of slavery that are still alive and well today. And that's true. And the gospel does give us the the fuel that we need. It does fuel the engine that we have to say, look, in Jesus' name, we've got to let the prisoners go free. That's true. But I want us to think this morning about how we, in some ways, are like that girl. The powerless. The one who's being used at other people's whims. The one who's being made to do this so other people can gain. And I thought of two things. And the first is um, not G-rated. And all of you look up. That's great. I ought to say that again. (laughs) We live in a very sexualized culture that easily enslaves us. It's traps of addictions. And habits all of a sudden quickly become addictions because of the access, because of technology, because of the ease of being entrapped. And sometimes in church, all we talk about is accountability groups. They just need accountability. That's all you need. And that may be true for many of you. But there is a moment, there is a line that is crossed somewhere where all of a sudden you are more like this girl in chains who... There's no issue of, can I choose, can I not choose? It's, you're stuck, you're caught. And the addiction could be one of the ones we, that has a longer history, maybe. We think of, oh, yeah, yeah, alcohol, drugs, whatever. But I suspect that the things that put us in the places where we end up going to say the very first confession of a 12-step program or Celebrate Recovery is, I am 
powerless. Powerless. I am powerless. Maybe to be able to know that, look, I, I, I've tried this and I've had people call and I've had this and I just, I, I don't know, I, I, I'm stuck in this. And I, what I want to suggest to you this morning is that there are layers to who we are as people and layers to how our freedom takes place. And, and there may be a top layer, change the environment, get out of these environments. That's certainly probably part of it. But there's also probably a deeper layer that says, you know what? Are you medicating a wound here? Is there something that needs to be addressed? Is there something that you should work through with a counselor or with a group or people that know how to walk through this stuff to see, look, what, what's going on? What, what is this, this thing that you're trying to fix? But I say there's something even deeper than that. There's a spiritual force. There is evil at work in the world that is more than happy to keep us enslaved for its own advances and its own purposes. And only Jesus breaks those chains. Only Jesus breaks those chains. So you can change the environments, you can set up the accountability, you could go through all this the stuff and say, I gotta talk and I gotta do this and I gotta figure out this and that. But ultimately, what we need is to say, where does Jesus come into this place of pain? Where does Jesus come into this moment of slavery? Where does Jesus come into this place of bondage and say, be freed? Because what the trap that we find ourselves in so often is to say, well, all right, well, I'll do better. Well, I'll try harder. Well, if I just, if I got better, if I could, just, I could, I could then I could. And only Jesus says, you are forgiven. You are made righteous. Only Jesus says, look, I have taken on myself, the verse in 2 Corinthians, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Only the gospel rebuilds us from the inside out and says, okay, then since we are this way, we do have the Holy Spirit who can help us address the woundedness and address these issues and then finally address the habits and change the environments and all of those things. Look, it's layers upon layers, but it begins with Jesus at the center of it saying, this is not who you are. Otherwise, everything else is just another try, another stab, another change, another thing. Others of you are in prison because of unforgiveness. In this place of saying, you know what, I've been stuck. I've been kind of caught. I, I, I'm, this person hurt me, or this person did that, or this church did that. And, this, and I'm never going to let them off the hook. And this is going to be my life instead. Those are chains that make you, keep you powerless. Sometimes people will say, well, you know, I, I, I was really hurt by this relationship. And so I've just decided I'm taking a break from relationships. I'm not going to date anymore. I'm going to throw myself into my career. Because work will never disappoint you. <laughs> His parents say, oh, these, these children have betrayed me. They've hurt me. I'm just going to walk away from the, ch- from the children for a minute. And I'm going to do what I love. And I'm going to... Be all about my friends, because friends will never disappoint you. You can turn from this thing to that thing to this thing to that thing, but all you're doing is asking for another set of shackles, because you're asking something to be for you what it could never be. 
Just oh, yeah, clap, clap then. Oh, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. It's like you're trying to decide. You know, just do it then. A relationship, when you ask a relationship to be the thing that fulfills you, it ends up being the thing that enslaves you. When you ask your work to be the thing that fulfills you, it becomes the thing that enslaves you. Only Jesus says, look, if you surrender to me, if you lose your life, you will find it. If you believe in Christ, you will go free. The answer is not to move from this, captive, this captor to another captor. The idea is to say, come to the one who sets the prisoner free. Amen? The gospel is for the powerless. The last one is maybe the most famous part of Acts 16. It's Paul and Silas with the jailer. And basically what happens is these, uh, the, these men that are profiting off of this girl get really upset. Anytime you threaten someone's source of income, there's always a pushback. And so economic forces collude with political forces for the sake of mutual gain. We've never seen that before. And then that, that, they, they come together and decide that it's not in the best interest for, for Christians to be allowed to proclaim the gospel. Again, never seen that before, uh, all of 20th century Europe. And, and all of a sudden, Christians are being put aside, and Paul and Silas are, are asked to be shut up here. And they're locked up in this prison, and then it says... Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. And all at once, there was such a violent earthquake that it shook the prison's foundations, and the doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. And when the jailer awoke and saw the open doors of the prison, he thought the prisoners had escaped. And so he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul shouted loudly, Don't harm yourself! We're all here. And the jailer called for some lights and rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And he led them outside and asked, Honorable masters, what must I do to be rescued? Now there's a chance all the jailer is saying is, Whoa, how do I get out of this mess? As in the mess of the earthquake and the prisoners that are about to escape. But whatever he was asking, Paul gives him the most comprehensive answer there could be. Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your entire household. You have to, in the next few chapters, you'll see Christians are accused of following a different king, following Jesus instead of Caesar. Lord, we've talked about this in this Acts series, Lord is whose title? It's Caesar's title. And so Paul basically says to this Roman guard, he says, look, what must you do to be saved? Believe that your boss, Caesar, is a sham. He sits on a throne of lies. He's not the real Santa. He smells like beef and cheese. (laughs) Believe that Jesus is the true King, the Lord. I've lost you. Okay. (laughs) And right then, in the middle of the night, the jailer welcomed them and washed their wounds. He and everyone in the household were immediately baptized, and he brought them into his home and gave them a meal. I mean, can you picture this? The jailer is washing the wounds of the very prisoners he was guarding. Wow. He invites them over to his home for a meal. He and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. He was overjoyed because he and everyone in his household had come to believe in God. The gospel is for the powerful. The gospel is for the powerless. The gospel is for the hopeless. You may say, Glenn, I, I, you know, I, I don't relate to the powerful. It's not me. You've got to see the car I drive. It's like, oh, I don't relate to the powerless. I'm not quite stuck as a prisoner. But, but hopeless? 
Yeah, maybe that's more it. Stuck in a dead-end job, this jailer, that gives it a new mean, the phrase a new meaning, a dead-end job. A job where he thought he, was, he had to take his life, that anything could be better than going on. Maybe you're at the place where, whether it's loss or grief or confusion or hurt or woundedness or whatever it may be, that's brought you to the brink of saying, of despair, of saying, I don't know how it will ever get any better than this. I don't know how life could change, how it could turn. And all of a sudden, the gospel comes to us and says, look, the issue is you've been serving the wrong Lord. You've been serving Caesar. And Caesar is always going to disappoint you. There will come a point where you would rather end it all. Say, ah, it doesn't, this is meaningless. It doesn't work. It does not, what's the point? But there's only one Lord who all of a sudden restores the hope for life. His name is Jesus. There's only one Lord who says, look, hey, look, you've been living for the wrong lords. You've spent your life serving Caesar, and now it's come to this. What'd that amount for? Nothing. You say, well, it's time to reorient. It's time to believe on Jesus as Lord and Him alone. That's a king who always keeps His promises. That's a king who always lets hope arise in your heart. That's a king who never fails. That's a king who never loses. That's a king who always wins. That's a king worthy of full allegiance. When the gospel gets inside your heart, what it does is it begins to bring you together. See, we look at a cross every week because we are reminded that it sets us right with God and then it sets us right with one another. Acts 16 ends by saying that the church gathered in Lydia's home and Paul encouraged the brothers and sisters there. Imagine with me for a moment who might have been in Lydia's house that day. Maybe the slave girl was there. Maybe the jailer and his whole family came. Can you imagine even in the jailer's house the prisoner and the jailer eating at the table together. The powerful, the powerless, the hopeless, all called by Jesus' name and made into a family together. Amen? What I would love to see continue to happen with us as a church, as New Life Downtown, is... When we gather, we gather to proclaim the gospel again to ourselves. We gather to equip the saints. But when you go out there is where you continue to embody and proclaim the gospel. Chances are pretty good that this week you'll run into someone who is chasing power and believes that becoming powerful is the end. Chances are you'll meet someone this week who feels stuck powerless, caught in an addiction or in a web of unforgiveness. Chances are you'll meet someone this week who feels stuck in a dead-end job. Maybe it's the same job you have. And they say to you, how come you're so happy on Mondays? Like, because the Broncos just killed the Steelers last night. No, not just because of that. Not to, you didn't catch that today. Okay. Not just because of that. 
But my work, the way I see work, is totally different now. Because my Lord is not Caesar who gives me this job. My Lord is now Christ. Everything is different. We gather, we are fed on Christ and on His Word, and we are sent back out into the world to say, Spirit of God, show me the ones who are powerful, who are powerless, who are hopeless. Show me the ones who are sitting in this place. What if tomorrow you will find Lydia waiting to hear how her life can be given the greatest meaning of all? What if tomorrow you find the slave girl hoping that someone will rescue her from these chains of being objectified, of being told that she's got to be more beautiful or more this or more that so that men will love her, so that life can be this way? What if you meet her this week? What if this week you meet the jailer who's ready to throw in the towel and say, eh, what's it all for? Will you, like Paul, go into the city and say, The gospel is good news for each of you. Amen? Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you that you've given us Jesus. We thank you that you've not left us here to sort things out, to find our own gods and our own lords and our own things, our own way of freedom and our own way of hope and our own way of forgiveness. The truth is all of us in this room are here because we believe that we could not do that. And we embrace that Jesus is good news for every person. God, give us eyes to see the ones that you're calling us to, the ones that you're drawing us to, the ones that you're putting us alongside of so that we can be there to speak the word of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.